This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. It's great to be together. Uh, If I haven't met you yet, I'm one of the pastors here. My name is Craig, and uh, it's just really a joy to have you with us if you're new or newer. If you're, you're, it's a joy to have you if you're old, too, been around for a while. But uh, if you're newer, we are working our way through a book of the New Testament called 1 Corinthians. And uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn to chapter 5. We're going to cover that whole chapter today. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, then there's one under the seat in front of you. Take it out. And uh, it'd be good to take it out because you'll want to see what we're talking about today. And you can just uh, track along there. Uh, It's on page 555 in that Bible. And if you don't own a Bible yourself, uh, then that's our gift for you. So look at page 555 right now. And then at the end of the service, take it home with you so that you uh, could have that Bible as our gift. So today we're going to look at chapter five of first Corinthians. Let's pray. Our God, we come before you this morning and we recognize our need for truth. Every one of us in this room is prone to self-deception and prone to believing what we feel and what our culture thinks uh, shapes us to believe. And we pray today that we would be informed by your word, that it would be crystal clear in all of our minds, and that we would joyfully uh, respond and humble ourselves before your word. So speak to us, Holy Spirit of God, uh, speak to everyone in the room. I pray that uh, as we go through this passage today, there would be much understanding and no misunderstanding. So please help us in that process and help us to not only be hearers, but help us, as your word says, to be doers of your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if I were to ask you, what is the love chapter of the Bible? Or if I were to ask you, if I were to narrow it down and say, what is the love chapter of 1 Corinthians? If you're familiar with the book, then you would say, well, it's 1 Corinthians, what, 13. Love is patient, love is kind. Because that's the passage, a beautiful poem, that's the passage of scripture that all of us yanked out of context and had read at our weddings uh, about love. And we'll see the context in a few uh, weeks when we get there, but it's fine if you had that idea. It's great. It's a great passage. I want to suggest this to you, that what we're about to read today is the first love chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians. And that's going to take some explaining because on first reading, if you've never read this, it will not look like love. When we read this the first time, if you've never read it, it will not look like love because this chapter teaches something about the nature of the church that is completely at odds with American culture. It's completely at odds, sadly, with much of the evangelical church in American culture because this chapter teaches something about the nature of the church that sounds out of place in a pluralistic society where you have your truth and I have my truth. It sounds out of place uh, where we believe that it does not matter what I do as long as no one is being harmed. Just stay out of my business and I will stay out of your business. You do your thing in your bedroom. I'll do my thing in my bedroom and we'll greet at the 30 second greeting time at church and then we'll go on our way and see each other next week at church. But that is not a biblical picture of a loving community. And we're going to see that Paul is advocating that there be love and care in the community of 1 Corinthians. So listen with me as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is God's word. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. 
For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, as if present I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? God judges the outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Purge the evil person from me. Welcome if you're a guest and this is your first time <laughs> at Grace Church. And without joking at all, I'll say this is the exact reason we teach through books of the Bible. Because I would never last week say, what should I preach on this week? And say, oh, I know. There's a lot of new people coming. Why don't you teach on purge the evil person from the church? Last week, we had a guest preacher preach on hospitality, making strangers into family. So last week, it was bringing people into the church in love, and today it is kicking people out of the church in love. So you can criticize our church about a lot of things, but we are thorough, okay? We got it both ways. How in the world is this a chapter about love? Well, before we jump into the chapter, and we're going to walk through pretty much verse by verse, but before we do that, I want to use an illustration that I think will help understand, help us understand this idea of removing this man from the church, which Paul is telling them to do in Corinth. I want to use an illustration that I'm going to use as a running illustration throughout the message to help us understand. A number of years ago, there was a compelling television show. I don't know if it's still on. I haven't seen it in years. But there was a compelling television show called Intervention. And on this show, have any of you ever seen the show? Anybody seen the show? It's not a bad show. You're not a bad Christian if you saw it. Okay. Uh, this show, every show had the identical same plot. It was a reality show where the producers of the show would find someone addicted to drugs or find someone who was an alcoholic, and they would sort of trick them and tell them they're doing a show. It's not a total trick. They were doing a show about drug abuse or alcoholism, and then they would trace the life of this person whose life was completely out of control because of substance abuse. And they would show how the person lied to cover, how they lived with secrets. They would show the person actually shooting heroin or getting fall over drunk and blacking out. They would show the, the depth of despair. And they would show how these people who were addicted, sadly, were absolutely destroying their lives. Um, and then they would also interview and show the family, the supportive family, the supportive friends who were usually aiding the person in their self-destructive behavior. They would show how the, the mom would lie for the behalf of the son and tell the employer, yeah, he really was sick and couldn't be there or whatever when he really was strung out on drugs. They would lie. They would give them a place to stay when they got kicked out of their house. Um, they were generally guarding them from the consequences of their destructive behavior. Every show had these two factors. And then they would have a counselor who would meet with the family and prepare them for an intervention. And so they would tell the person, the addict, that we need you to be at this place at such and such time. And they would walk in and there would be all of their family and all of their friends. And there would be a counselor that they didn't know 
and then the attic would show up, could be completely surprised, and they would gather around and exercise tough love. And they would each read a letter expressing their deep love for their friend, their family member, who was really caught in a destructive trap of substance abuse. They would explain how much they loved them always through tears and sobbing, how much they loved them and hated to see them ruining their lives. And they would explain because of their love, they were urging the person, even demanding the person go into rehab immediately. There's a car waiting outside and the goal is at the end, they put them on a car, they drive them to an airport, they fly them to like a rehab resort kind of place, really nice, far away from everybody to get the help they need. They would explain how the actions of the individual are destroying his or her life and how the actions of the individual are destroying the family. And then they would say, if you refuse to get rehab and get the help, you will be cut off. We will no longer give you money for drugs. When you get kicked out of your house, you will no longer be welcome to sleep at our house because you're refusing help. If you won't get help, which is completely paid for, we're going to give you over to your own destruction so that you will come to your senses. We love you enough that we will not let you destroy yourself. We love you enough that we will not let you destroy this family like you are doing And like we are participating in our own destruction by aiding you in your self-destruction. We love you. And because of that, if you will not get the help which is available to you right now, we are going to fundamentally change our relationship to you until you come to get the help you need because we love you. It was some of the most mesmerizing, tear-jerking, gut-wrenching television I've ever seen. And all kinds of things happened. Sometimes they walked out. Sometimes they went to rehab. Sometimes they went to rehab and quit and came back and mom didn't stand up to what she said and gave her kid money for drugs and et cetera, et cetera. Now the analogy breaks down at some point, but the spirit of the passage we just read is similar. Paul is calling for a Corinthian intervention. He, he, he's calling for them to act. We would call it today church discipline and not intervention, but I like the term because I think it relates. We understand the love behind intervention. He's calling for church discipline. He's calling for member accountability. He's calling for tough love. Ultimately, he's calling the church to act. So the first thing I want to talk about in this passage is that when someone is in this kind of sin, number one, intervention is necessary. There's a scandalous sexual immorality in the church and intervention is necessary. Look what Paul says. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. The word translated sexual immorality appears at a number of places in the New Testament. The Greek word is porneia. It's where we obviously get the word pornography. It means sexual sin. It is any kind of sex, the Bible would describe any kind of sex outside of sex within marriage. It is used throughout the New Testament to describe that. And Paul says this particular sexual sin is unusually alarming. Look at his language. It is actually reported. You can hear the sense of that. This is shocking that this is going on. Look what he says next. It's not even tolerated. What's happening among you is not even tolerated among pagans. Paul is writing into Corinthian, they live in the city of Corinth, and this was a very sexually liberal city. It was as liberal, their sexual standards, their level of tolerance would make Americans blush. So they, they allowed for a wide range of um, sexual activity and affirmed a wide range of sexual lifestyles in their culture. But even in first century Greco-Roman world, the Corinthians were known as a very loose environment. Matter of fact, if somebody was characterized by promiscuity, someone who was just randomly, you know, having regular hookups with people, this sort of a thing, if they lived that kind of life, they would be called a Corinthian. That was the language of the culture. You're living like a Corinthian. That meant sexually loose, uh, promiscuous. And yet, Paul says, even the Corinthians would find what's happening in your church uh, intolerable. They would not even tolerate that. 
Well, what, what wouldn't they tolerate? Well, it says, for, verse, I'm in verse uh, 1 still, for a man has his father's wife. He's committing incest. That's what's happening in the church. He's committing incest. Incest is to have sex with one's primary or adoptive kin. And the language indicates that this was probably a lifestyle. Whenever he says he has his father's wife, whenever the verb to have is used to speak of sex in the New Testament, it usually describes someone has someone. It usually describes an ongoing relationship. What Paul is saying is that there is a man in the church in an ongoing sexual relationship with his father's wife. Maybe that's his stepmom. It doesn't say his mother. It says his father's wife. But in Leviticus 8, both mother and stepmom, sex with adoptive kin, are, um, are forbidden as well. So it would have been forbidden in the Bible, and it would have been frowned upon and not tolerated in liberal Corinthian culture. He's sleeping with his mom, his stepmom his father's wife, literally. Now, she is not mentioned and there's not a concern mentioned for her. So we can assume she's not part of the church. That's very important because that comes up later in the chapter. His concern is not for the woman so much, presumably because she's not part of the church, but his concern is for this man who is living this lifestyle. Now, you may be shocked that an active participant, a member of a Christian church would practice incest as a lifestyle, and your shock would be understandable. But that's not what Paul is most shocked about. What Paul is most shocked about, what he is most alarmed about, is the church's response to this. Look what he says in verse 2, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Now, is he saying they are bragging that they have an incestuous man in good standing functioning as a Christian in the life of their church? It could be. I don't think they're bragging about that. I think this is a reference to everything we've read in 1 Corinthians. If you've been here, you know that the entire first four chapters is about the arrogance of the Corinthians. The entire first four chapters is Paul correcting them because they think they are mature. He literally says, you think you are kings. You think you don't need anything. You think you have arrived. You think you don't need Paul. You are, there's four chapters of Paul correcting them because they think they are mature. They think they are wise. They think they are spiritual. They think they, are, uh, they have arrived. They are not impressed with Paul. They don't need Paul. And he's saying, you are arrogant, and yet in your church community, you affirm a lifestyle of incest for a professing Christian? You shouldn't be an arrogant church. You should be a weeping church. You should be a mourning church. It means grieving. You should be a grieving church. For what is happening is grievous. You should be intervening. Somebody should do something to help this man and to set what is right in the church. You should be intervening into his life since he is not repenting. And since he is not repenting what you should do, verse 2, let him who has done this be removed. You should remove this man. You should be grieving. Why? Because a professing follower of Jesus is living a lifestyle that unbelievers would despise. And God is grieved by this sin. God is grieved by a lifestyle of sexual sin. You should be grieving that this man who professes Christ has wandered off, who's headed towards destruction, and nobody's doing anything but helping him with their silence, with their arrogance. You should grieve for him because he's in danger. You should grieve for the woman that he's sleeping with if she's presumably not a professing Christian. He is all, she, all he is doing is confirming her unbelief. She's, she is in sin before the Lord. And he's saying, in essence, I can be an active member down at the church and I can sleep with you with something that God forbids and it's okay. So that she is affirmed in her unbelief. You should be grieving for this woman. You should be grieving for your reputation 
Not your reputation that we're a great church, but that we're a place where holiness matters. You should be grieving for the reputation of your Savior, who the pagans are looking at and going, wow, the Christians do things that we wouldn't even do. Why would we want to believe in your God? You guys are worse than we are. And that's not just sexual sin. Let's pick the sin there. That self-righteousness where much of the world can point at us and say, why would we want to be with you? You're way worse than we are. Self-righteousness, judgmentalism. That's what we talked about two weeks in a row. So if you're new here, I'm not just picking on sexual sin because the scripture doesn't. Matter of fact, later he lists a bunch of other sins that we could all locate ourselves in. You may not be sleeping with a family member, but you can locate yourself in some of the other sins he mentions in this chapter. And so you should be grieving that the reputation of Christ is being dragged through the mud. You should grieve for the effect this has on the church. And we'll look at that in a minute. The church is affected by this. You need to take action. You need to intervene. You need to practice loving church discipline for the unrepentant man who professes Jesus. In our culture, the idea of remove someone from the loving church, in our culture, that could only be harsh, only be unloving, only be judgmental, and only be self-righteous. And let's be honest, churches that practice church discipline, and we would be one of those, many churches which practice church discipline do that and carry that out in judgmental, unloving, self-righteous ways. So it is possible for someone, a church, to practice a loving intervention and it not be loving at all, it be judgmental and harsh. It's certainly possible. But, the, but, but that is not what's going on here. He, their concern is that there be loving intervention. Why? For the good of the person, which we'll see next, and then for the good of the church, and all of that for the glory of God. So first of all, intervention is necessary when someone is practicing unrepentant, ongoing, scandalous sin that harms the person or harms others or harms the reputation of Christ. Number two, intervention is for the person's good. This is love. How do we know that? Look at verse four. Verse three, he says, I've already judged this is wrong And I'm going to be with you when you judge it's wrong. That's what he says, verse 3. Verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of our Lord and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So, okay, this is a purpose statement. What's the purpose? So, so what? What's the purpose? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What he's saying is the day of the Lord is the return of Christ. And what he's saying is Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. And on that day, God will judge those who have rejected Jesus and send them to condemnation to eternal judgment. Those who have turned from their sin and believed in Jesus as their savior will be welcomed into eternal life in a new heavens and a new earth beyond description in how glorious it will be. And so he's saying on that day, when it comes to judgment, what we want is for this man that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He's saying if there's nothing more loving than to prepare someone to stand before the Lord and be welcomed into his presence. This is the most loving action possible. And so what he's saying is let's do all that we can to make sure this man has a genuine relationship with Christ. We want to see that his sins are forgiven. We want to see that he has believed in Christ and repented. We want him to experience. What do we want for this man? For him to feel shame, scorn, embarrassment? No, we want him to experience eternal joy and eternal life. An eternal life in heaven with Christ. That's what we want, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That is the goal. So Paul says, love him enough to do the hard thing now so that he will experience the good thing forever. Forever. They don't love this man. They hate him by their actions. So love him enough that his spirit may be saved. That's the ultimate motivation Because of love, they're going to need to do something courageous. Here's what they're going to do. When you assemble in the name of the Lord, deliver him to Satan 
deliver this man over to Satan for destruction of the flesh. Now, I don't think what he's saying is kick him out so the devil can kill him. I don't think that's what that means. I think what he's saying is, and this, please track with me here, because this next section is the most sobering part of the text, I believe, in terms of what our doctrine of the church is. He says, deliver him over to Satan for for that his flesh may be destroyed. Now, flesh is used two ways in the New Testament, like this, your physical body. But usually when Paul is talking about the flesh, he's not talking about that. He's talking about the opposite of the spirit. He's talking about our sinful desire. So like, for instance, in Colossians, I mean, in Galatians, he says, the fruit of the spirit, here's what the spirit does. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, these kinds of things. And the deeds of the flesh are, and he lists a bunch of them, Incest would be on there. Uh, sexual immorality would be on there. So he's, he, I think he's saying that, that this man is motivated by his flesh, his sinful desire. So turn him over to Satan for the destruction. In other words, give him over to his sinful flesh. Allow him to run his own way, put him out so that he gives himself over. The intervention model is really very similar here. Put him out so that he comes to the end of himself, that he walks out his desires, um, and that, uh, that, that he is ultimately uh, comes to a place of destruction. Why? So that he will repent and come back into the church. So he'll be welcomed back saying, this is wrong. I ended that relationship. I'm not, I'm not having sex with my father's wife anymore. I want to come back in and walk in where he is joyfully welcomed back in, but he may have had to hit bottom. Before that came, his fast flesh, his sinful desire. He won't respond to patient. What I what what I assume has happened based on other would happen based on other scriptures, specifically Matthew eighteen, is that there would be a process of appeal and love and help and support. And if someone rejects all of that and says, "I'm going to live contrary to God as a lifestyle, and I don't care what anybody says," then at this point, you need to say, "Let him go." Let him live his life, come to his bottom, put him out, come to the bottom of his life, put him out. Now, here's why it's so sobering. Verse 2 and verse 5 are really parallel. Verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from the church, is parallel to, um, it's parallel to turn, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. That being put out of the church is being delivered over to Satan. Why? Because he is being removed from protection. He is being removed from the protective teaching and care and oversight of the elder pastor shepherds in Corinth. As bad as they are, there's still someone to help him. He's being removed from the blessing and the strengthening and the nourishment of receiving communion in worship. He's being excommunicated. That means he's not given communion in the church. He is being removed from the fellowship of brothers and sisters who come together and bear one another's burdens, love one another, fight side by side with one another to help each other follow Christ, pray for one another, encourage one another, strengthen one another. He's being removed from all of that help and all of that aid. He's being removed from using his own gifts. The church is really about gifts. First Corinthians church is really big on gifts. He's being removed from exercising what he was designed as a Christian to exercise, making his contribution. It's more blessed to give than to receive. He's missing out on the blessing of serving others in the body of Christ to be taken out of pastoral care, communion, fed with the word, fellowship, walking with the people of God, using your gifts. The Bible describes this as being separate from all of that is like being under the influence of Satan. And we have a generation of people that are self-selecting church discipline by not participating in a church. We have people that says, I love Jesus, but I don't like his people. I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. And they're self-selecting, willingly, voluntarily entering the life that this man is entering as a punishment, a discipline for sin. They're joyfully taking it and saying, well, I can listen to a sermon on my iPod and I've got worship music in my, uh, in my, uh, in my headphones and I can read a Christian book now and then. I don't need a church. Paul says, that's the scariest thing imaginable. 
This man should be terrified because he's being handed over to Satan. He is being exposed to spiritual attack without the protection that God provides in the body of Christ. Why? So that he will come to the end of himself in destruction, in repentance, so that on the last day he may be come to his senses and be welcomed into eternal life. That's sobering, friends. That is sobering. The church is, I don't know, I can, I can take it or leave it. Boy, that's not, that's not the way the New Testament. The New Testament knows nothing of a person that would be isolated from the body of Christ. Knows nothing of that. And when someone is isolated, it's viewed as discipline. It's not viewed as freedom. It's viewed as open to the destructive forces they're all around. If you're a first-time guest here, kick the tires, take your time, find a church. I'm not talking about if you're not currently a member, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people that choose as a lifestyle. It's not, we just moved and haven't found a church yet. It's not just, it's been tough, but I'm getting back into it now. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking to the person who says, I can willingly live my life as a Christian apart from the people of God. And that's just fine with God. And that's just fine with me. And that's how I'm going to live my life. I'm talking about that. The Bible calls that church discipline, not freedom. So, he's removed. What's the goal? That he'll come to his senses and that he will respond. It's just like the loving mom who says to the addict, I will give you no more money for drugs. I will not give you a place to stay when you get kicked out of living with whoever you're living with. You must come to the end of yourself so that you will accept the help that's being offered to you. Go to rehab, get healthy, get help, and then we will gladly welcome you as family. It's the exact same thing. It's not hate. It's love. And that's why I say this is a love chapter. The reality is, there's two realities here. The man may not be a Christian. He may be an imposter. That happens all the time. There's people that say they're Christians. They're not really Christians. They haven't had a genuine conversion. He may not be a Christian. So what he'll do is he'll cause him, he'll just continue his life. If he's not, he'll continue his life. And sadly, he will continue in his sin, but the people of God will relate to him as someone who's not a Christian and will share the good news with him and invite him to believe. But here's what happens in that situation. At least the church was not, if I can use intervention language, at least the church was not codependent and supporting him in his false assurance, like everything's okay. At least he won't be able to stand before the Lord and say, I had a false assurance because they all said it was okay. No, they, they said he was an unbeliever. So hopefully he'll repent if he's an unbeliever. If he's a believer and has just gotten off the track, wow, could a believer sexually sin? Absolutely. Could a believer, you really believe Jesus and somehow you wander slowly into perversion? Absolutely, that can happen. So if it does, then he will repent. He will ultimately come to his senses and he'll come back in and be welcomed. Either one of those are a win. He doesn't have false assurance, that's a win. Or he repents and comes back, that's a win. So either way, it's gonna be loving for him. But Paul's concern is not just the wandering man. Paul's concern is for the whole church. Interventions for the person's good, number three. And finally, intervention is good, is intervention is for the church's good. Paul uses some Old Testament imagery that we're not perhaps familiar with in this passage. He says uh, in verse six, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. What is all that? Okay, here's what it means. They make, you make your dough. You don't go down to Kroger and buy bread, okay? You, if everything's homemade. You make your dough, make your bread, you bake it. What you do is before you bake it, you take uh, you know, a lump of it out and let it sit for the week. Next week, when you make your next bread, you take and you put the, you put the bread together. You put the glob that has been fermenting all week. You put the fermenting leavened bread into the unleavened. You mix it all together, and that gives the bread its lightness. That makes it a sour dough because it's a fermented dough. You mix it all together and bake your bread. You have light, sour dough bread. But before you bake it that time, you take another handful out and save it for a week, and then put it in, another handful out and save it for a week. You get the process. Then at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which he mentions here, they throw away all the leaven lumps, and now we're just making pure dough. 
Why? Because the leaven spreads throughout the entire batch. Once you put the, the clump of fermented dough in with the other bread and bake it, it's not like you come out and you have like one slice that's fermented and the rest is unleavened. That's not the case. It is all leaven. And that's Paul's point is that fermentation spreads to the entire lump. Evil spreads in the community. Evil affects the community. And as a loaf, they are unleavened, he says. But because of the man's sin and more importantly, their tolerance of it, it is making them a leavened church. The evil is spreading. It's corrupting the church. Now, we have no category for this because we have a modern Western mentality that is, and in America in particular, is radically individualistic. Just know that for the history of the world, and in much, maybe most of the world today, population-wise, people don't have a radically individualistic mindset. They have more of a tribal mindset, more of a, a community mindset. That, that My actions, if you grew up in a tribe, my actions affect the whole tribe. My actions affect, our actions affect one another. We can't even grasp that. We, we hear that in our culture. It's like, whoa, that's crazy. I mean, that's like cultic or something. What do you mean my actions affect someone else? What I do doesn't affect anybody. But God looks as the church as a whole, looks as a community as a whole. And he says, if the community is allowing blatant, after a process, help, love, resources, compassion, gentleness, after all of that, someone says, forget it. I'm going to live like someone who's never met Jesus. And I don't care what you say. If we get to that point and you just say, okay, that's okay, that will affect the whole church. That will affect everything. It affects the witness. It affects the spirit's work in the church. So unrepentant sin, like this gentleman's, doesn't just affect his life, but it affects the witness of the whole church. It affects the character of the whole church. And so we can remove the leaven by repenting, by changing, by trying to change. What does he call unleaven? He says, he says down in verse 8, he says, um, the leaven is malice and evil, but the unleaven is sincerity and truth. The church is not made up of uh, perfect people. The, the church is made up of people, by the way, that sin sexually. Certainly in thought, everyone sins in thought. And Jesus says, if you lust in your heart, it's like adultery. So, so everyone in this room is a sexual sinner. And some people fall and physically commit sexual acts that the Lord does not endorse. But a community or a, that he forbids. But a community of sincerity and truth says, I've fallen, but by God's grace, help me get back up. It doesn't say everybody has to be perfect, even sexually perfect. It says that we have to be a community of sincerity and truth. Where we're, where we're trying to change, where we want to change, where we're accessing help where we're grieving our sin and we're receiving the grace of forgiveness and the help to change. In that environment, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about unrepentant sin. That is the leaven. So throughout the letter, it always comes back to the gospel, right? Cleanse out the old leaven, verse 8. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So he says, as you really are unleavened because Christ our sac uh, uh, has been sacrificed. He's saying, Jesus died for our sins. Jesus made us new people. So we're a community of people. We're to live as unleavened people. That is, we're to live as people of sincerity and truth who've met Jesus. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. The presence of God has an adjective describing him, and it's holy. The Holy Spirit will produce a community of holiness. Broken people, weak people, sinful people. But people catch this, that over time are becoming more like Jesus, not less like Jesus. This, this guy and this community is becoming less like Jesus. It means that we're light in the darkness. We're not becoming darker than the darkness. Even the pagans don't approve of this. We're not becoming darker than the darkness. We're walking in the light. We're walking in the light. So I don't think I need to keep building bridges. You get it. We're not talking about perfect people. We're talking about broken, sinful people with real problems. And many of us really messed up in the church. Church welcomes all that. The difference is, are we seeking by God's grace to come to Christ for help? Or we're saying, I don't care about that. I'm going to do in secret or in public what I want over here. And I don't, I'm not going to repent no matter what help there is. That's the difference. And Paul says, you've got to deal with that because it's affecting the entire church. Now, Paul wants to make sure they don't misunderstand. Look at verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter, so he's previously written them, not to associate with sexually immoral people. 
And he says, look, I didn't mean don't have any friends that are committing sexual sins. I'm not talking about, uh, you know, the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. He's talking, I'm not talking about don't have anything to do with sinners. He says, you'd have to leave the world for that. That's called heaven where there's no sin. He said, I'm not saying that. Matter of fact, we should as Christians have friends that, are, that don't know Christ that are sexually immoral. If we don't have any friends and we only have Christian friends, then it's going to really hit, how's our witness? How are we going to share the gospel with anybody? We should know people, have acquaintances and or friendships with people that are, Jesus was the friend of sinners. Prostitutes and tax collectors were comfortable in his presence. So we should have friends that are sinners. And we should have friends that are greedy. Okay? So it's not that if we have someone that with a, that's addicted to gambling because they're trying to get rich quick. If we have someone that's, that's uh, uh, enslaved to materialism and is just trying to store up as much nice stuff as they can. If we have someone that's, and they're not a Christian, that's not what he's talking about. Befriend that person. Show them generosity. How it looks different to follow Christ. Someone who's a swindler. Or an idolater. An idolater is someone who has a God above Jesus. So any lost person is an idolater. They have a God that they're, they're worshiping something besides Jesus. So we should have friends like that. He's saying, what I'm writing to you about is don't associate anyone who, verse 11, bears the name brother if he is guilty of those things. So if he says, I'm your brother, I'm in the church with you, we're, we're in this together, but I have a lifestyle of uh, and look at the things he talks about, not only sexual immorality, but I have a lifestyle of idolatry. I don't worship Jesus. I worship whatever else. I have a lifestyle of being a reviler. I'm a hateful person. I have a, a lifestyle of being a drunkard. I have a lifestyle of swindling people, but come on, I pray to prayer. I believe in Jesus. I got a Christian t-shirt. I went to the conference. My name, I went to the new members class. My name's on the roll. I'm in, I'm all good, but I don't live for Jesus. I don't access help. My whole lifestyle is dominated by life controlling sin. Uh, I'm talking about don't let that person think he's a brother. Don't treat him as a brother, treat him as an unbeliever so that he'll repent and come back and treat him as a brother or he'll get saved and he'll be your brother, but don't give him a false assurance. Like everything's okay. That's hateful. Do you want a doctor that won't tell you you have cancer? You go in with cancer, with lung cancer. Do you want the doctor to say, I think it's just the flu. Is that loving? That's malpractice. So if someone lives a lifestyle of sexual sin, do we tell them it's okay? Oh, you don't want to repent? You don't want help? You say it's okay? You say God's okay with you sleeping around? That's no problem? You say committing adultery, it's destroying your wife and your marriage and your witness and everything else, and we'll help you with that, but you don't want to help? It's okay? And after repeated attempts, you just say, forget it. I'm sleeping with this woman however much I want. Don't care what anybody, it's none of your business. Why is it, why is it your business? Don't treat that person like a brother, is what he says. Help them, love them. Say, we got to change our relationship out of love. So how does this apply to us? Well, first of all, if you're new, we do have a practice of intervention. We do have a practice of church discipline. It's very specific steps. It's based on uh, patience. It's based on a, uh, very much a, uh, a re- marshalling resources to help a brother or sister who is trapped. Uh, it is loving and it is very rare. It's not like we have done what's going on here very many times. So it would be very rare that someone gets to this place like this guy does in the process uh, that I have seen. So it's rare, but we're prepared to love people in this way when necessary. It's one reason it's rare is because we're embracing a lifestyle of repentance. So the lifestyle of trying to follow the Lord is, yes, I fall, but let's help me get back up. Maybe I fall for a few weeks or a few months, but let me help, help me back up. I'm not, I'm not going to live this way, you see. If you are not part of a church, you're looking for a church, may I say, let me just lovingly say to you, uh, you may not supposed to be in this church. There's great churches. I can, I'll actually recommend churches to you. If you say, well, I don't want to be here. I, I'm happy to recommend churches in this area that, that uh, I would go to that I think are good. There's many good churches. Don't join a church that would cut chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians out of their Bible. The Reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, the Reformers said there were three characteristics of a church. 
A church had the word, a church had sacraments, that'd be baptism and the Lord's Supper, and a church had church discipline. Didn't say anything about children's ministry, didn't say anything about what songs they sing, didn't, didn't, didn't say anything about uh, what they're doing for the youth, didn't say do they have a senior's Bible study, didn't say what's the men's program. Three things, the word, sacraments, and discipline. And if you, if you don't love someone enough to help them, then, then historically, and I think in this passage, that that's not really even a functioning biblical church. And God help us that we would be this way. Here's the kind of church you want to be a part of. I want to be a part of the church that if I start sinning and I start going off, that you would love me and help me, that you'd be compassionate with me, that you would counsel me, that you would pray for me, that you would support me, that you would give me every resource to change. But I want to be a part of a church that you love me enough that if I refused all your help, you love me enough to kick me out. You love me enough. I want to be a part of a family. I don't have a drug problem, but I want to be a part of a family that if I was a drug abuser, wrecking my life, spending all of our money, losing our job, wrecking my marriage, wreaking hell in my family. I want to be a part of a family that my wife would love me enough, my kids would love me enough, even if they're old enough, my grandkids would love me enough, that they would say, honey, that they would say, dad, that the grandkids, if they're older, would say, pops. We love you enough, this can't stop, and here's the consequences. I want to be a part of a family that would love me that much. I want to be a part of a church that would love me that much as well. By the way, it's not 100%, but in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul writes to this church again and says, the, show some love to the guy that's repentant so that he doesn't feel overwhelmed by his sin. He's repented. Now welcome him back in in love. Many scholars think it's this guy, that this guy made it and the church brought him back. Isn't that wonderful? Now it could have been someone else, but it could have been this guy. So how do I apply this? Here's number one. This is for everybody in the room. Number one, practice daily intervention. Practice daily intervention. Every time you open the Bible and read and see your shortcomings and ask the Lord to forgive you and ask the Lord for help and ask the Lord for grace and ask the Lord for forgiveness and then ask others to forgive you that you've sinned against. Every time you do that, you're practicing a spiritual, what's the word we use? Discipline. A spiritual discipline. You're practicing a self-intervention. You are, you are living daily and you're experiencing the love and the mercy of graciousness of Christ. And that guards you from a hardening heart. And that's why people that are regularly in fellowship with the Lord like that, the percentage that end up in chapter 5 is minuscule. Minuscule. Not impossible, but minuscule. People who practice regular self-growth in the Lord and have a personal relationship with Jesus and his word and his spirit, just, they don't ever get to this place. Do they sin? Yeah. Could they sin sexually? Yeah, they could for sure, but they're not going to live that way. It's not going to be their lifestyle. So practice daily intervention. Number two, invite help for others. What is a church? It's a place to help one another. And they're not helping this man. Pray for one another, counsel one another. Now, I'm going to say something that's going to sound crazy. What, what if this guy, let's say he's really a Christian. What if way before this, he got with one of the elders? Or he got with a Christian friend and he said this to them. I'm, this is embarrassing. This is really, really embarrassing. I don't even know how to say this. Well, no, go ahead, tell me I'm, I'm with you, I'm for you. I trust you. Um, I'm tempted by my father's wife, sexually tempted. Could you pray for me? Could you help me? What do you think I should do? Or what if it's the other way around? Man, I don't know what to do. My father's wife is coming on to me. What, what do I do? If that's not in secret, but that's told, can you help me? Can you pray for me? Well, what's happening? And he describes, well, she's coming on this way and that way and other. What happens when that happened to Joseph? And a woman came on to him. He fleed. What if they'd said, she's coming on to you sexually? Yeah, and what's worse is I'm feeling like I might give in to the temptation. Great. Pack your bags, move out, come live with me. Get, you can't live in a context where someone is sexually coming on to you that you're tempted by. 
Get, you come live with me. We'll take care of you. We'll help you. with. If it's that bad, we'll help you. What if the guy had done something like that? Oh, that's crazy. Really? It's crazier than having a church where someone's living in an incestuous relationship and everybody knows about it and does nothing? That's crazy. It's not crazy at all to say, I've got an embarrassing temptation. I've got a perverted temptation. And you get that out of the dark, out of the secret, and share that? And there is help. That's why outside of the church and Christian relationship, that's why there's spiritual attack and vulnerability because there's no help. This didn't have to happen. In a biblical church, this guy could have gotten help long time ago. What if he slept with his father's wife one time, committed incest, and came to the elder, came to the elders, came to his small group, came to his friend, I don't know, said, I got to confess, here's what I did, and I don't want to do it again. He could get some help. He could get some help. But this guy never did any of that, evidently, and nobody cared. When I think about applying this text, this is what I think about. Practice daily intervention and build relationships to seek help. Do you have at least one person in your life that you could ask help for from? Are you personally moving towards the gospel? Are you moving towards the Lord? Are you interacting with him privately in your, in your, in your devotions? Are you seeking to turn from sins that Jesus put on the cross are you seeking to die for on the cross? Are you seeking to live an open life and get help? Do you talk to anyone about weaknesses? Do you talk to anyone about temptations? Do you talk to anyone about sins? Are you say, well, I don't have any relationships like that. Okay, that's fine. So are you attending a community group where at least there could be a chance where you could find somebody and make some acquaintances? Are you part of a context where we're helping to support each other, helping one another to grow, helping one another to follow Jesus? Listen, Paul in the Corinthians church, any church, our church, not looking to remove anybody. Nobody wants the pain of removing someone. Nobody wants to sit down with their relative and have an intervention and say everything's changed. because Nobody wants to get to that place, and it never has to be that way. If we practice daily intervention, regular, regular intervention, and if we're seeking help from others. This chapter describes what we do when someone won't accept help and lives in persistent, serious, unrepentant sin. We purge them for their good because we love them and we want them to be with Jesus for all eternity. So we'll do something hard now so they'll have good forever. And we're concerned for the church and we're concerned for the witness and we're concerned for the reputation. We're concerned that not for the reputation of our name, Grace Church, but for the reputation of Jesus' name, whom we represent. I don't think right now we need to be thinking about, oh, is anybody like this in the church? I'm not aware of anyone in the church. This isn't like a hidden, this isn't a subtweet. We're not preaching this. Ah, oh, somebody's going to get, no. I'm not aware of anybody in our church in this situation. But let's just ensure we never get to it, and any of us do, that we honor the Lord, that we love the Lord, that we're growing and getting the help that he provides. So I think the application of this text is I don't need to be thinking about them out there. I need to be thinking about right here because my heart could lead me astray. And the greatest fear is not this chapter. The greatest fear is my relationship with the Lord. That's the greatest fear. Let's pray together. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.